Bethlehem in Judea is just south of the capital. Look, I've got a couple of, couple of pictures there just for you. Thank you. Just run through them for me. We've got Israel there. And then a bit further. Can you see Bethlehem there? It falls just shy of, well, short below Jerusalem there. It's in Judea, one of the sons um, of Jacob. It's, it's a small place, insignificant in that it's overshadowed by the capital, but significant because of the birth of, who's the most significant person to come out of Bethlehem? And obviously not Jesus. I know Jesus is. <laughs> but we'll put Jesus aside. Who's the most significant person? To, David, yes, yes, thank you. It's the city of David. David's born there. And so it's no coincidence that Jesus is going to be born there because David is a type. We're looking at typology, types and their fulfillment. And here's, here's what we're told how this whole thing happened because, because Jesus' parents aren't from Bethlehem. Well, they're not living in Bethlehem. They're living way up north. Okay, and yet here it is, and this is why it took place, and it's really interesting. In those days, Luke tells us that Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And so Joseph, we're told, went down to Nazareth in Galilee because he's from there, he belonged there, his line was there. And so he's taken, he's taken a state ruling to bring about the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Just, just quickly as an aside, I think this is, gives us some confidence. We sometimes wonder, you know, you know, our state, our government, or any government, wherever you may live in the world, you know, you know, what do we do when they're passing their laws and legislation? Where is God in all that? Well, here's one thing I see here, and Romans confirms it, Romans 11, 11 is it, 13, thank you, it confirms it. Hey, God is bigger than the Liberal Party. Okay? He calls the shots. Really? Now, no matter how big these people think they are, how mighty they are, God is the one who's Lord and Chief. And, and so we submit to governments out of reverence for God. Until until we are called to disobey God's word. And at that juncture, we know the disciples says, look, you know, hey, we're going to preach Jesus. Whoever tells us not to preach Jesus. And it's one thing we do. And hey, we live in a wonderful country when there's liberty to preach Jesus. Praise the Lord. And may that long continue. But here's the point, okay, is that God is over government. He ensures that whatever Augustus Caesar has got in his mind why he wants his census to be taken. God needs it to happen because Jesus must be born in Bethlehem. And the reason he must be born in Bethlehem is because David was a type of Jesus and David was born in Bethlehem. And in order for Jesus to fulfill this typology, the connections have to, have to be there. And the first and most important connection is if Jesus is really the greater David then the origins are to begin the same. And so Luke tells us later, today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. So Jesus is going to fulfil all of the things that David did or was in his person, 
that points to Jesus. He's going to fulfill all that. And he begins with his birth. They're both born in the same place. And so the way you look at David, David, if you like, is an organic, typological picture of Jesus. And the, and the Old Testament is full of them. Uh, the temple is a picture of Jesus. It's why John says, destroy this temple. Uh, the lambs were pictures of Jesus. Adam, too, as God's son. Except that son was a miserable, terrible son, wasn't he? It's why God says about Jesus on, on, on the day of his baptism, you know, with John the Baptist, this is my son. He takes ownership of him, not Adam. You know, I disown him, God is saying, but of Jesus, this is my son. And so here's Jesus fulfilling the typology. So the verse continues. During the time of King Herod. Uh, boy, that's an important thing here. It's an incredibly important point here. Because the minute he mentioned that, here's the thing, you're going to forget uh, little Josephine who lived in, on, the, on the banks of the Jordan. And uh, she had five kids and she was a lovely housewife and her husband was uh, a coppersmith. Does anybody know Josephine who lives on the banks of the Jordan? No, you're going to forget her. And the mention of Josephine has no impact on anything. It proves nothing. But the minute that, that, that we're told that Herod... Herod was king, King Herod. All of a sudden, you're now taking this piece of literature and separating it from literature about legends. You see, when you read legends, and if you're doing the historical readings, if you read legends, the, thing, the key thing about legends is they lack, they lack precision and historical data. They lack it. Because they're legends, and you can't tie them down. And when you read a legend, it's obviously a legend. You ask any scholar who's interacted with, with, with the, the documents, the manuscripts of the Bible, old or new, and the first thing they tell you, and here's one, is that they differ from any other writings of antiquity in that they are full, pregnant, with detail and historical markers which verify their authenticity. And so Herod... Everybody knows Herod. You may have studied him, studied him at school. Herod the Great, born 73 BC. I was born in 73, but not 73 BC. 80, with a 1900 in front of it, just in case you were wondering. Okay, 73 BC, by the time he's 33, okay, my age, by the time he's 33, he's now appointed, okay, okay king of Judea by the Senate of, of the Romans. He made that rank so early because he was gifted, intelligent, politically brilliant. But the thing about Herod was power. You know, say power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He did that for Herod. He became, he became absolutely paranoid. He hated the people he reigned over. You can imagine what it felt like to be under his reign. He hated the Jews that he was reigning over. He became so paranoid that someone was going to kill him. He had his own wife executed. And his two sons. And on the day of his death, he had lined up hundreds of Jewish leaders for execution. Power corrupted 
immensely in the in the in Herod. But here's the thing, here's why it's so important, because it gives us a brilliant, brilliant historical marker, because here's what we're told, okay, here's what we know, Matthew 2, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph and said, get up, take the child and his mother, and go back to the land of Israel. So we're told about Herod, we're told that he's dead, and that automatically Gives us what about Jesus? About Jesus. What does it ultimately? We're told by Herod. We're told he died. So here's what, here's what we know about Jesus' existence. We know a timeline of Jesus. It's brilliant. And this is what it does for you. This is why we say it's better than legend. Because here's what we know. Herod was born in 73. We know he came to power uh, BC. We know he came to power in 40. We know Herod died. Here it is. Thanks, Greg. We know... Herod died in... Uh, would you just go back a slide for me, uh, Greg? Thank you. We know, oh, uh, and the one before, Herod died in 4 BC. Thank you, and you didn't go back twice. You didn't really need to do that. Go, go forward twice again. Herod died in 4 BC. So what does that tell us about Jesus' time frame? So we get an idea now. We're going to work out when Jesus was born, when he did his stuff, because Herod... All history agrees, born in 73 BC, dies in 4 BC. That means that Jesus lived, well, at least was born around that time. And so here's the thing, if, if Herod died in 4 BC, and Jesus is already in existence and living down in Beth, not Bethlehem, where's he living? Down in Egypt. What does, that, what does that tell us about when Jesus was born? Have a think. And it's there. Jesus was born, try this at home, before his birthday. Do you see that? Because, because here's, here's what we're saying. Here's our dating system. It begins with A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. It's, it's not after death, by the way. That's the bizarre thing when some people think A.D. means after death. Because then you ask, in our timeline, what's happened to 33 years? You know, it would be bizarre. So, no, it's the mark of his... So, so everything starts at zero in our timeline, used universally, before Jesus, and effectively after Jesus. The year of our Lord, the year of his, from his life, okay? So, naturally, Jesus must be born at zero, but if Herod died in 4 BC and Jesus is still alive, and we're working back this way, anything that's sort of zero, it means that Jesus must have been born at least 4 BC, most probably 5 BC, because he's, he's, he's been in, down in Jeru uh, Egypt for a year or two, it seems. So there's an issue with our dating system. And it's only because uh, when he was done, look, things weren't easy, records, and there was a miscalculation as a consequence of it. Here he is. As a consequence of it, he put Jesus' birth here, and we later discovered that Herod had died about here, and hence where everything's out. Jesus is born about 5 BC, which makes his birth 2,026 years ago. It means, and Jesus was, and here's the point we, we're familiar with, Jesus wasn't a baby at the time that Herod died. Jesus wasn't a baby when the wise men came to him. He's at least a few months, maybe a year and a half. So our dating system is slightly out. Jesus is born about 4 BC. He's born when Her just before 
Herod dies, maybe a few months, maybe a year and a half. He's born in this little town called Bethlehem. There's another picture of it there for you. And at that time, when Jesus is between six months and 18 months old, we're told that Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Magi is a Greek word. All of the New Testament is in Greek. Here's a, here's a Greek word. Uh, thanks, Greg. Next one, please. There it is. I want to tell you this because it's quite interesting. I want you to help me out here. Look, here's the Greek word, magi. There's mu, which is an M. There's alpha, which is an A with an accent. There's what's effectively a G, gamma. Okay, so you've got mu, alpha, gamma. Does anybody know what that O is in Greek? What's the Greek word or letter? What's the name of that Greek letter? I only tell you because it's pretty, pretty interesting just now. It is, mate. Thank you. It's, yeah, it's Omicron. Yeah, it's, the pronunciation is Omicron. It's, it's where we got the new Omicron variant. I hadn't realised that when the Delta came out, but they're all Greek alphabets. Delta, Omicron. So look, and then Sigma. Magos is the Greek word. Here's what it means. It means an oriental scientist or intellectual. I know we, we can sometimes separate wise men from intellectual men, and, and, and we're not right to do that. We have to understand what's being said here. It's saying, here are academics, intellectuals of the highest standard, okay, representative of their country, probably, of wherever they're from. So what's, here's what he's saying, is some of the smartest men on the planet came from the East. And you know what they say, that those Eastern men can be pretty smart sometimes, don't they? Is that right, Denise? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah well, I'm from the West anyway, you know, I'm from England. But I was born in the East. So look, so these super intellectual men from the East come to Jerusalem. Okay. They're not kings, most probably. Uh, there's no, uh, the, when we call them the three wise kings, uh, they're not. So, well, there's no biblical data for it. There is a verse in the Old Testament, Psalm 63, talks about kings bringing gifts to God's temple. And so that, that's maybe where he's from. We, and we know that there's not three, because we, we, ever, we assume there's three because of the three gifts. Who knows how many there were? There may have only been two. Uh, wise men is plural. Uh, there may have been ten. So, and, and the names are, do you know those common names? Melchon, uh, Balthazar, and Gaspar. Uh, that's just tradition from the 6th century. So we know nothing about them except this one key element. And this one key element is relevant to what I'm going to say to you today. Is that these were intellectuals of the highest standard from their world, from their country, who have travelled 2,000 kilometres. Okay on horseback or camelback, to Jesus, okay, to Jerusalem in search of Jesus. Verse 2, and asked, here's what they asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. We saw his star in the east and come to worship him. Hey, look, one of the things you... you do at Bible college is you interact with all kinds of literature that you otherwise just wouldn't. And so when it comes to theology, there's a wealth of stuff, weird and wonderful stuff. And one of the things everyone's asking in, well, in the theological scholarly world is, what was this star? 
is an explanation. And some have been put forward. I mean, I've got a list of few here. Some have suggested it may have been an event in 7 BC, very close to when Jesus is born, you see. 7 BC, uh, where two planets, Saturn and Jupiter, were passing. The thing is, these are both intelligent and, and uh, they have uh, uh, astronomy skills. Most scholars and scientists of that era did. And they would have known a star from planetary movements. Another thought has been that it's Halley's Comet. Well, you know, I've seen that in my lifetime. You guys probably have too, haven't you? So Halley's Comet, but the trouble is, Halley's Comet passed in 12 BC, which would be way too early to be Jesus. Uh, and the other one is supernova. Supernova are those faint stars that explode and then they leave a mark in the, in the sky. Uh, but the trouble is, with supernovas is, and this star, this star was initially was moving and then stopped. And so again, it's not the kind of thing that supernova may do. And so here's what most scholars, you know, uh, that, that are biblically favoured, not all scholars are biblically favoured, obviously, uh, have suggested this was supernatural. Uh, there's nothing in history to suggest this was a natural phenomena, but something that was supernatural. Now this is a question they, they ask, and this, this gives away uh, why they've come. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? They go to the king because I'm assuming that this guy's got royal Royal blood, uh, you know, and think about Jesus. Jesus has got royal blood. He's from Joseph's line. Joseph is of royal blood long time in the past. And so they asked the one who's been born king of the Jews because they've worked out. And he, he, he shows something of their intelligence, something of their expertise. They are the Old Testament scrolls. We don't know how much of the Old Testament they had. The thing about the Bible back in those Bible days is that you only ever had parts of it. It, was, it wasn't easy to access. It wasn't easy to get your hold on the, uh, hand on the whole thing. So whatever bits, parchments, whatever parts of the, the Torah, the, the five, first five books, the Pentateuch, or the rest of the Old Testament, we don't quite know. But whatever they had, whatever access they had, and maybe they had access to the whole thing, they have discerned and they have worked out that the Old Testament scriptures were, were leading, pointing towards someone from God coming. And here's something they would have read. Matthew doesn't quote it, but it's in the original, in the Old Testament. Here's what it's written. You, Bethlehem, Epithar, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. The Old Testament prophets foresaw one coming who coexisted with God. Look, whose origins are from of old, from ancient of times, that puts him outside the sphere of, of humans. So the Old Testament prophets foresaw Someone coming to the nation of Israel who coexisted with God. And that coexistence with God is already telling you this, 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 is, this is no mere person. And it seems that these wise men have understood that. Because we see, what did, what did they do? Oh, just before I get to that, in the New Testament, John tells us, here's what John tells us about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, which is a, a name for Jesus, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. John fleshes his out. He's saying, this Jesus has coexisted with God 
for all of time. And so the wise men who have understood that Jesus coexisted with God have come to do what? And this is telling. They've come not only to give gifts, the gifts are an expression of this one thing they want to do. What do they want to do when they get to Jesus? Yes, thank you. I think it's the next one, please, Greg. Thank you. They want to worship him. And here's the point I'm trying to make is that their familiarity with the Old Testament, their superior intellectual abilities, the fact that these were probably the the smartest, most intellectually gifted men of, of their domain, of their area, their great learning didn't lead to atheism, but to deism. The belief in a deity. Their great learning and intellects did not lead naturally to atheism, but deism. You see that, friends? Great intelligence doesn't necessarily lead to great atheism. No, not at all. Not at all. And we'll look at more of that later. They had discerned the God who was contracted to a span. This is a hymn, Christian hymn of, of Christmas. They learned before the hymn, before Jesus, before they even met him, that God was contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. They had discerned that in Jesus was something of deity. And they'd come to worship him. Where is the one born king of the Jews? The wise men worshipped Jesus. Here's, here's some uh, three sub-points that I want to leave you with this morning. So here's the application of just these first uh, few verses. We'll try and do more probably next week, but that's as far as we're going in the text. Okay, here's three pointers for us, three things for us to do. Number one, reason and intellect do not necessarily point us to naturalism or materialism. Naturalism is the, is the science that believes everything can be explained by natural means. Ricky's in existence because she's got a mum and dad who live together as husband and wife. It is a natural explanation of everything. Materialism is not all about wanting the latest gadget. Materialism is a belief that there's nothing but material. There's no spiritual world. There's no other dimension. And the point I want to make here, and the point I think these intellects from the East tell us, friends, is that reason and intellect do not necessarily lead to naturalism or materialism. Not in their case. Their great intellect, these wise men, their superior mental abilities led to faith in God, led to a belief in God, led to a pursuit of God. Wise men demonstrate that faith isn't necessarily just for dummies. And this is what I'm missing, my friend Brenton. He's not here this morning. Okay, don't tell him I said that. (laughs) Okay, faith in Jesus is not only for dummies. Do you get that? And we see that all through scripture. Take Nicodemus. I I don't know what you know about Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of the 70 most intellectually gifted persons in Israel. He's the one who went to Jesus at night, and Jesus said to him, you have to be born again. And the most intelligent person in Israel had no idea what Jesus was saying. Okay? You know, Nicodemus was a part of the Sanhedrin. 70 elite men. You didn't get into the Sanhedrin 
unless you were the smartest person in your country. They knew the whole of the Torah off by heart, and in some cases the entire Old Testament off by heart, as well as, as a mammoth body of oral material that they knew they could just recite uh, on demand. Nicodemus was one of those. And here he is, seeking Jesus. Take the Apostle Paul. I don't know what you know about the Apostle Paul. It said scholars believe, you just read his writings, scholars believe that the Apostle Paul was probably the smartest man of his generation. One of the most intellectually gifted men of his time. You see, great intellect and faith can and do coexist. Let me bring you into modern times. In our world, I mean, gone now, but C.S. Lewis? You know, we know C.S. Lewis, we, we know Chronicles of Narnia. He was an Oxford and Cambridge don, a fellow of the most significant universities, one of the most significant universities, two of the most significant universities in the world. One of the smartest men of modern times. Loved God, taught about God, and wrote great things about him. We can take someone who's living, D.A. Carson, one of my spiritual heroes, still living. Some say he's the greatest theologian of our time. You know, you know they said of him that he knows the New Testament off by heart in Greek. Seriously. That's a pretty big brain, <laughs> bigger than mine, by a little bit, by a lot, <laughs> okay, by a lot, okay, and, and look, uh, this all this, so look, the world has got their Hawkins and Dawkins, they have, and without doubt, some of the smartest, most intellectually gifted men on the planet, but men of faith like John Lennox, do you know John Lennox? John Lennox, does anyone know who that is? Alison McGrath? Okay, Alison McGrath has got not one, not two, three PhDs from Oxford or Cambridge. I forget which one. Obviously, I haven't got one. That's why I can't remember which one. It's one of the two. Okay, excuse me. Okay, and Lennox? Lennox? Okay, holds prestigious positions in those universities. So, so the point I want to get across to you, friends, is that faith in Jesus is not just for thickos, for dummies. Some of the smartest people who've ever lived, the most gifted academics that have ever existed and are in existence today. I mean, Lennox, you try speaking, you know, he humiliates Dawkins in debates. You just listen to him, Dawkins. You just listen to him. Some of the most gifted people follow faith in Jesus and walk with him. So wise men sought Jesus, they still do. You're not a dummy if you believe in Jesus. You're not a dummy if you believe in Jesus. Secondly, Jesus is more than a mere holy man. It's one of the, what these people demonstrate. A holy man is someone who pursues God. He's more than even a prophet, someone who speaks for God. He is the being we know. He's actually one with the being we refer to as God. And, and look, here's what the Jews knew of God that he was one. Here's what, what the Shema says. It's in Deuteronomy 6. This is what every good Jew knows. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. But these intellects from the East knew that that oneness 
without destroying it, without doing injury to God's oneness, the wise men understood it was a complex oneness. One, there is only one God. The God of the Bible is one, but it's complex. And here's what we learn later on, and here's what, what the wise men have discerned, something of it. It's what John told us, it's what we now understand, is that this one complex God has three persons to his oneness. There's not three gods, there's one God with three persons, three essences. One essence, three persons. Three faces almost to one God. And yet, three distinct persons. And, 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 and what the cross shows us is that, is that it's possible to sever the oneness into some degree. The cross did something that has never been heard of. It severed the oneness to some degree. But the point here is, is, that, is that the wise men discerned that our God is a complex person of more than one character. And so when we worship Jesus, and good, old, good young Stephen has mentioned a lot about his personal experience of encountering the risen Lord. He is the only name you need to know. You are right to worship him. You don't make it. Do you ever think, if I say Jesus too much, I'm going to make God jealous? Do <laughs> you ever think like that? I used to. You're not. He loves you talking about his son. Let me ask you, you if you've got kids here, who here gets jealous if when you go walk into a room and you've got your son with you and everybody's taken up with your son? Who is getting jealous? You'd have to be bizarre too, wouldn't you? Because you, you, you love your kid and you want people to speak well about him. The father loves the son. And, and, and it's right that you talk about him. And because when you talk about Jesus, when he's on your lips, on your heart, you're honouring the father. Who does not honour the Son, John 5, does, it's not in there, does not honour the Father who sent him. Worship him. The wise men came, knowing about God, okay, as God-fearers, and they worshipped Jesus. They understood Jesus was God. Second thing, and the last thing, and I'm going to finish with this. Jesus, his birth and his subsequent adult ministry fulfills hundreds of Old Testament prophecies and predictions. It inaugurates the final epoch of human history. His birth wasn't random. The location wasn't random. It wasn't by chance. That star was a supernatural phenomenon. It didn't naturally occur. Hundreds, there, are, there are hundreds and hundreds of Old Testament prophecies or in modern term predictions about Jesus before he came. Here's, I want to give you three. Here's one about his life or his in- inception. In Isaiah, written about 700 years before he's born. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign the virgin will be with child. Here's one about his life. Isaiah 61. Again, look, these are all from Isaiah, written about 700 years before Jesus. Here's what he said about him. That the Lord has anointed him. This is from his first person perspective. The Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom and to release prisoners. Here's what he says about his death 700 years before he's born. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. Written before he was born, before he lived, before he died. So here's the point. This is what the old old wise men rather understood, these intellects, that 
everything in the Old Testament, that the chief message of the Old Testament was about Jesus. It points to him. Jesus isn't a random accident of history. He is a planned, purposeful event. It's why he was born in Bethlehem. It started the chain reaction of the typology for which Jesus will fulfill all that David pointed to in Jesus. One of, the, one of the pictures that David pointed to was an Israel where there was peace from their enemies. An Israel where silver and gold were worthless. Jesus will one day reign over a planet, this new one, where it's perfect and when it's a picture, a better picture of David's reign. Hey, we wait for that. We wait for that. And I've finished. And so the three, the three the points I just want to leave with you. Faith in God is not just for dummies. Do you remember that? When the intellects out there, intellectuals out there try and uh, desophisticate Christianity? Okay? Some of the smartest men who've ever lived in our living passionately follow Jesus. Number two, Jesus is one with God. Worship him. And finally, everything about him had an origin way before it happened. He came to fulfill everything that was said about him. Hey, we ought to believe, love and follow. Worship Jesus.